Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivin Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tsarich Iyun podcast brought to you by Shivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming to the podcast as the first returning guest, not from the Oraita faculty, my friend and my neighbor, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody. Rabbi Brody, thank you so much for coming on the Tsarich Iyun podcast. Rabbi David, it's great to be back. So we're currently... Um, about 31 days uh, after the horrific massacre in uh, southern Israel. And I'm sure many people, many people listening to this podcast are following the news, um, if not hourly, you know, certainly very frequently. And um, there are a lot of questions that are coming up in the context of trying to make sense of what's going on in uh, southern Israel right now. And you're somebody who has unique expertise here. Um, You actually just published a book, which was you know, I think should be available any day now on Kindle and should be available in print hopefully very soon through Magid, uh, talking about uh, the ethics of warfare from a Jewish perspective. So before we get into some of the specifics, maybe if you could just give a brief overview of, you know, what your book is about, sort of what motivated you to write the book. It's an extraordinary contribution, and I don't think there's any book really like it. So maybe just give a quick overview as to sort of what is the book about, you know, what, what prompted you to write it, and have you been thinking about these issues for a long time? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, the book is called Ethics of Our Fighters, which is obviously a play on ethics of our fathers in Pirkei Avot. And when you think about it, uh, Jews have a lot to say about virtues and morals, and sort of Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, uh, exemplifies that. But it's hard to find the ethics of our fighters. And that's for a lot of reasons, but the primary one is that we didn't really fight and have an army for so many centuries. And so we didn't develop that literature. Over the past hundred years, really since World War One, we've developed a lot of literature on that topic, and of course that you know really became amplified during the, after the founding of the State of Israel with all the dilemmas we've had. And what I've tried to do in the book is to systematically present, I think in some ways for the first time, in really systematic level, ways that Jews should think about the two major issues that come up with military ethics, both what justifies going to war in the first place. And secondly, once in war, what makes it just uh, war when, the way you fight? How do you fight ethically? And so that, that's really been the dilemma I've been thinking about, which is primarily inspired by just so many of the wars and questions that we have living here in Israel. And uh, th- that's what really pushed me to write the book a- a- in a way that I hope will also make the contribution of Judaism to this discussion relevant to the broader population and to those thinking about questions of military ethics, because even within the not so limited, but, you know, relatively speaking, limited world of rabbinic literature on this topic, most of it's written in Hebrew and very little of it relates to on a significant level, the philosophical and ethical literature that's being written by people around the world on this topic. And so I try to create a conversation between the philosophical ideas and those insights, along with the rabbinic writings and do it in a way where I'm trying to actually tell a story more than anything else. And the book is a narrative. It's written more or less chronologically and trying to tell the story of how these ethical dilemmas emerged 
and how Jews had to think seriously about them in real time. Uh, and so, unfortunately, it's become very relevant. But uh, as I knew when I was writing the book, uh, the, on, this topic is always relevant for us in Israel. I think oftentimes people actually have the mistaken impression that not only is Judaism sort of agnostic about uh, military ethics, but they think, you know, I think you've mentioned to me offline that, you know, one a scholar had mentioned to you that, you know, Judaism has nothing to say about military ethics beyond, you know, Mechieta Malek or some type of, you know, reference uh, specifically from the Torah. But I think, you know, one of the very, uh, you know, insightful um, elements of your book is that you realize that, you know, Judaism actually has a lot to contribute here. In other words, it's not just in dialogue with the broader uh, philosophical conversation, but it actually has its own unique voice. And that unique voice is very important when trying to think more broadly about, you know, larger ethical questions. Absolutely. And I think this is hopefully a model for the way that we have contributions to other areas of law, like medical ethics and things, you know, I think about a lot with my work at Amatai. Uh, so, so too, we have a lot to contribute here as well and to learn from, by the way, other ideas out there in the world. Whenever you engage in serious ethical discourse, you're going to contribute, but also learn and we have to think about how we can integrate some of those ideas as well. So I think one of the uh, most interesting aspects um, as English speakers of sort of engaging um, the news and trying to make sense of what's going on uh, in the war in Gaza right now is it can oftentimes be, you know, really frustrating because, you know, when you, you know, when I get up in the morning, I check the Israeli news sites, but I also always check the English speaking news sites, especially the ones overseas, to get a sense of how is the war being reported uh, beyond Israel. And I think many people feel frustrated that, you know, when you hear about the war on CNN or the Washington Post or other places, you hear these buzzwords that come up a lot. You hear about proportionality, you hear about collective punishment, you hear about excessive force. And there's this undercurrent that, you know, much of what's going on in terms of the Israeli response is sort of uh, ethically problematic. And I thought it'd be uh, an important exercise with, you know, specifically with you, given your expertise, to provide some context to sort of unpack some of these buzzwords and really sort of provide a more sophisticated framing for thinking about what's going on. I actually thought an interesting way to begin the conversation was to talk a little bit about proportionality. Um, one of the things you mentioned in the book uh, that I was unaware of before I read it um, is that apparently in 2003, Ariel Sharon, who was certainly no stranger to uh, military activities, um, actually had the possibility of uh, wiping out almost like the, the whole leadership uh, of Hamas in, in one bombing and um, he decided not to do it because he was concerned with proportionality. In other words, he was concerned that too many civilians would be killed in the bombing. And there's a whole sort of context here, which is that he had just killed another very significant Hamas terrorist leader, not, uh, you know, a little bit before that. And there was an international outcry. People felt it was unjust. It was excessive. It wasn't proportional. And the reaction of the world sort of uh, limited Sharon. He felt that if he decided to destroy all of Hamas leadership in that one shot, the outcry would be that much greater. So maybe if you could just begin by talking about proportionality specifically through uh, this lens, because I think in, in your book, in the chapter or in the many chapters on this topic, you really provide a sophisticated understanding of what proportionality really is all about. Yeah, no, this is an area of great frustration. It is important to clarify it. I think that there are two elements when thinking about this, because you raised the question of the news uh, there's one element here of just how people perceive things, right? Whether or not they understand the terms. I think Michael Walter, the great uh, philosopher, pointed out in I think 2006 or 2008, one of the earlier wars in Hezbollah or Hamas, and said proportionality is usually understood by people as I don't like the pictures that I'm seeing, and so I say this is disproportionate. And that, that is a total distortion of what this term means, but it relates to what we call the CNN effect. 
right? The phenomenon that the way the world will perceive things will impact the way that we act. And proportionality was uh, developed, this notion was developed to say the following, we understand that there's going to be collateral damage. There's going to be civilian casualties, unintended casualties by certain military activity. And so the question of proportionality says as follows, if you know that this is sort of inevitable, what justifies you attacking the military target, which is your legitimate target, but you know there's going to be other damage as well. And so proportionality says, well, make sure that when you choose your attack, given the knowledge you have at that moment, make sure that the value of the target is worth it given the amount of, of damage that can cause to others as well, meaning it should be disproportionate. So the classic example is if you got a sniper who's on a break, right, who's in a town taking a shower, so you don't wipe out the town in order to take care of this sniper, right? That's disproportionate. And it's a lot easier in some ways to say what's disproportionate because here the military gain, the military advantage is so literal relative to the uh, civilian damage or the non-combatant damage, the collateral damage. That's what proportionality means. It doesn't mean, you know, well, they killed 1,400 of us, so we're only allowed to kill 1,400 of them or something like that. And that there's no notion of that in, in the world of ethics. And the idea is meant to be that we're trying to minimize and think carefully. On the one hand, we want to win and win well and win decisively. At the same time, we want to win in a way where we're really focused on killing those who are threats, not necessarily those who are not threats to us. And proportionality, therefore, is very important to understand. And so when Israel had this opportunity, when Ariel Sharon had this opportunity to really wipe out Hamas leadership, who was foolishly having a meeting in an apartment. And this has been discussed in Ronen Bergman's book and others as well. There's a Washington Post expose about about five years later. And the dilemma came up where uh, Avi Dichter, the head of the Shabak at the time, said, we got to do this. We got to take out the apartment. And Moshe Bogi Yalod, uh, he was of the opinion that it's disproportionate. And he's also concerned because the collateral damage would be so great like an apartment, nearby buildings, could have been dozens, hundreds dead, that the CNN effect would be terribly damaging. And so they didn't strike. And, uh, you know, Yalona's defended this decision afterwards. And Dichter is still upset about it. And I think Dichter is right. Uh, that was a grave mistake. And, and so it's super important to understand that collateral damage is a uh, unfortunate and tragic element of war. But we have to be willing to accept that and understand that that doesn't make uh, extensive deaths to be immoral. And one of the things you have to really understand is the distinction is extensive deaths and then there's excessive deaths. People see extensive loss of life and they say, that's disproportionate. No, it's not disproportionate. It depends on what you were trying to attack and what the goal was. When it's excessive, that's when you raise questions of being problematic. There's a very powerful line in the book where you say that uh, body counts are not a moral barometer and excessive casualties do not indicate excessive behavior. You know, I, I think that's a really powerful framing because oftentimes the way it's portrayed, particularly in the in the current war, is, you know, people will say X amount of civilians were killed in Gaza. And obviously, civilian casualties are always tragic. But your point basically is, is that as long as the motivation of the IDF, right, was that they felt like there were significant terrorist targets um, that they were aiming to in the context of uh, their war in Gaza. So inevitably, there will be civilian deaths. And obviously, that is tragic. 
but it's not a moral breach. In other words, it's not a violation of the proportionality principle because their intent wasn't to kill the civilians, right? Their intent was to kill the terrorists. And if it happens as a result, right, that is still within the boundaries of not only the uh, Jewish sort of legal defense, but also the broader international defense. So what will be considered uh, legitimate warfare? Yeah, absolutely. Body counts tell us nothing about the morality of the action at hand. It indicates, of course, a tragic moment, but tells us nothing about the morality. And this is very difficult in the world we live in when we see graphic pictures from Gaza, which look terrible. But, you know, it's also important to recognize, and you see this throughout the book, when you've had outside observers who have analyzed Israeli activity already since the first Lebanon war in 82, they repeatedly say that given the way where Israel is fighting in urban settings, asymmetric warfare against terrorists or fighting behind human shields, the amount of civilian non-combatant casualties is very low, given the circumstances of where they were fighting and how, and, you know, how they had to fight against. And I think Israel is trying to maintain this now as well. And, and therefore, we have to really recognize and have some moral fortitude about this issue, because it's difficult to capture that against the images that appear on social media or on television. One of the other issues that comes up in the context of proportionality is um, to what extent is it ethical uh, for an army uh, to do something which is obviously going to generate uh, a lot of collective punishment, but it's not necessarily a mil military target on an individual. It's more a strategic target on a specific asset of the enemy. So um, in the book, you reference uh, a story from the Second Lebanon War, where at that time the head of the IDF was uh, Dan Khalutz, and Dan Khalutz was somebody who was trained in the Air Force. And he was somebody who believed uh, fundamentally in the power of uh, air as being as sort of the way to win wars, right? He was more skeptical or resistant to use ground troops. And um, after, you know, the war began, so Khalutz actually had a, had a plan where he wanted to bomb the Beirut uh, power stations, right? And he thought this would be an effective strategy um, to sort of deal with Hezbollah. So here you have a situation where he's not necessarily killing a specific terrorist, right? He's just, he wants to destroy um, the power stations, which will obviously mess up the, the communications of the terrorists. So I'm curious if you can reflect on this for a minute, a little bit, because you know one of the things we're hearing a lot about in the context of Gaza is this question of electricity and water and fuel. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of parallels here. So maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about the story of Don Chalutz and then try to think about how we would apply uh, the Jewish and more broader ethical frameworks for thinking about the contemporary climate. So this is an important question about civilian objects as opposed to civilian people or targets here. But uh, the difference here with regard to electricity and others is that these are dual use. Of course, they're used by non-combatants, by civilians, but they're also being utilized in very critical ways by the military. And you know, when you ask this question that what, about targeting such um, you know, infrastructure and dual use targets, so you always have to ask is, well, who's gonna really be damaged by this? And to what extent, how significant is it? In the case of the 2006 war, uh, the prime minister of the time, Omer, I think correctly said, the damage that's going to happen to Hezbollah is going to be minimal. The damage that's going to happen to the civilians there is really great. And it's only going to bring the people closer on a strategic level, in a problematic way, to Hezbollah's side. So it doesn't make much sense, given the limited military advantage, to take such a measure. Now, when you come to the war in um, Gaza uh, today. So Israel, I think, 
mistakenly announced that I was placing a siege on it. Uh, this is from Defense Minister Gallant. I think that's a mistake because we actually didn't and never did and really actually can't place a siege because Egypt controls one side, right? They control one of the borders. But um, the issue of what to allow, what to strike is a critical one. And here, I think the decisions ultimately be made, I hope we maintain this, that when it comes to food, medicine, uh, water, uh, those things we're allowing, we're not providing, we're allowing others to bring into Gaza. But fuel, which is a really critical resource for military purposes, we don't want to allow in. And it's critical here because it's critical for their rocket launching and it's critical for maintaining ventilation in their tunnels. And so uh, in this case, the idea of allowing in fuel will undermine in a very significant way our military strategy and our military goals and make it easier for them to bunker down in those tunnels. Uh, and, and so I think in this circumstance, um, we don't have responsibility to provide fuel. Not only do we not have responsibility, we also know that if Hamas wanted to, it has the fuel to supply to the hospitals and to the people. It doesn't want to. It's been actually pretty explicit about this. That's going to play behind the alleged obligations of international law, and Israel shouldn't play into that. So you, you have your balance, and that's why it's important to distinguish, once again, how important is the military goal and necessity of a given strike, or in this case of depriving of fuel entrance, as opposed to what would be a case of, let's say, water or, or food, which Hamas fighters have. And so you're only really going to be depriving the civilians of that, and you're just causing a lot of damage, which doesn't give a lot of military advantage, but causes great suffering on the collateral side. But there does seem to be some overlap here, right? In the sense that it seems to me like what you're saying is, is that motivation here is a critical ethical variable. In other words, if the motivation of the IDF was simply to deprive uh, fuel to hospitals, right? Well, that would clearly be a moral breach, right? But the issue is if their motivation is primarily to deprive fuel or to, let's say, the tunnels or to uh, Hamas resources. So it's true that depriving fuel to the larger, you know, sort of Gaza community will have an adverse effect, right, on ordinary Gazans. But the reason why it passes the moral test is because it, it's more significant in terms of the impact it will have on uh, the fighters. And the motivation is really to target the fighters, even if, as a result of what happens, secondarily, civilians will be impacted. Yeah, so intent is important, uh, but we have to be careful about how we use it. Intent is certainly important, and, and it's important because of our motivation. But many people criticize this and say, you know, you can have all the good intents in the world, and you're going to say we're, we're going to separate here the, um, you know, the non-combatants uh, from the combatants. And, but at the end of the day, you know the result. In halacha, actually, we have this idea of we say this idea that on Shabbat, you might not intend to violate Shabbat, but if you know it's going to cause the malacha to happen, you, you can't do this action. And so the question becomes here as well, is since you know that the non-combatants are also going to be killed, who cares about your intent? And this causes a lot of issues in the world of, uh, mili of military ethics and international humanitarian law where a lot of people, particularly the more progressive side of things, struggle with this issue. And uh, what, there are a couple of responses which I think are very relevant to our scenario. One response is to say that it's not enough to say you have intent not to hit the non-combatants. You have to take risks and take actions in order to avoid hitting the non-combatants, including putting your soldiers at greater risk. 
This is the idea of many just war theorists, which has uh, the consequence of saying that you're going to end up risking your own soldiers' lives in order to avoid enemy non-combatant casualties. And I, I think that's problematic because at some point, while we do put our soldiers at some risk, there's a limit to how much we're going to do. We have to prioritize bringing home our boys and our soldiers, our boys and girls now, right? Men and women who are fighting, as opposed to uh, only worrying about um, the civilians on the other side. And I think ultimately it's partly intent, which justifies our actions, but also recognizing that responsibility for casualties on the other side, when we've given them opportunities to remove their non-combatants from the battle zone, then lies on the other side, in this case, on the Hamas' side. And that's why it's been so important for Israel to do forewarning and to tell people to flee, flee the south in this case, and also to create uh, evacuation corridors in order to let people flee, because that's part of the moral obligation. But at some point, when people haven't fled, uh, then the obligation, or aren't being allowed to flee because of Hamas's actions, then the moral responsibility falls on the Hamas side. You mentioned um, a, a lot of different variables that I want to touch upon, but one of them um, is this question of the, the siege and the ethics of the siege. Um, you mentioned the possibility of humanitarian cor humanitarian corridors. Um, there are pictures I saw just a few hours ago of Gazans uh, walking around with white flags, uh, basically making it clear to the IDF that they're, so to speak, surrendering and they're moving to the safer part of Gaza, I think the southern part of Gaza. So this actually has a really interesting history, uh, both ethically and in the standard halakhic literature, because there's this passage in the Rambam based on another passage in the Talmud, which assumes that when the Jewish people engage in a military siege, right, they have to leave um, one side open in order to allow people to flee. And actually, this became a re very relevant variable you talk about in the book in the 1982, the first Lebanon war, um, where at the time, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who was the chief rabbi at the time, um, he comes out very vocally saying that in the context of the siege in Lebanon, the Israelis actually have a responsibility uh, to make sure that there is the possibility for you know people to flee. And then um, another very significant rabbi at the time, Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli, he writes a response where he argues that there actually is no legal obligation from a Jewish perspective uh, to allow people to leave. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about uh, the contemporary sort of siege on Gaza and, you know, going on right now um, by referencing this debate between Rabbi Israeli and uh, Rav Gorin, um, which, you know, has its roots in the Rambam. And actually, interestingly enough, in, in the context of 1982, I'm not sure if the IDF was like officially listening to Rub Gorin, but they actually decided to implement his strategy. So I'm curious if you could describe a little bit what happened there. Yeah, no, it's a it's a pretty wild uh, development in Jewish law where siege warfare, which is the oldest form of warfare in many ways, is something discussed in Tanakh all the time, all of a sudden has this idea brought up in the second century common era, which says you got to leave one side open to let people flee. And the Rambam and the Ramban codify that position. And it's actually been cited, by the way, in the general um, just war literature of this notion of saying that there is a requirement uh, to allow people to flee. And there's two different rationales given for it, one of which is what you might call humanitarian, saying, let's let people live. And the Rabaz actually says, this is an example, you know, this is a manifestation of the principle of the Torah is the ways of peace. 
and that we allow, allow people to flee. There's also a very interesting strategic argument already launched, mentioned by the Ramban, which says when people are bottled up, have nowhere to go, they have no reason not to fight. But if they have a place to flee, they have an option before them, then they might flee and they might run away and they'll make it a lot easier to conquer the city. And so there's sort of this dual element to it. And Rav Gorin says, well, we've got to do this here in Beirut as well, because even though we're trying to destroy the PLO's uh, stronghold in Beirut, there are many tens of thousands of non-combatants there who we need to let out. And so he demands, and the Rav Israeli says, this isn't required. It's not a bonafide law and certainly not in a Muhammad mitzvah, a uh, war of self-defense. And it's crazy, right? And it's like, how can you do that on a strategic level? And amazingly, the IDF does uh, take that approach for both reasons I mentioned, humanitarian and also it was in our interest to get the non-combatants out of the city so it would make it easier for us to fight in Beirut and be able to target the combatants. Of course, the risk is the combatants, meaning the PLO terrorists in that case, would also flee the city and that would undermine the military effort. And so you have here a little bit of a dilemma of how you balance the various values and goals. And as you mentioned, Rav Gorin has to deal with this again in 83, when uh, Israel lays siege on Tripoli. Uh, the PLO Taurus have come back to, uh, to, uh, to Lebanon. Tripoli is a coastal city in Lebanon. It's also the capital of Libya. But but just to, just to clarify, was the reason why the, many of the terrorists were able to survive was because of the corridor provided in 1982? Um, no, no, because they, they survived then because America negotiated for Arafat and his 14,000 fighters to be able to leave. Got so it. it wasn't just because of that, but to, Rav Gorin took great pride in 82 that tens of thousands, could be even 100,000 Lebanese non-combatants got out of Beirut. And the number of casualties in Beirut was only about 5,000 non-civilian, non-combatants, excuse me, that were killed, uh, you know, probably another 20,000 wounded, which, which is tragic, but relative to the type of warfare we had there for two months is a very, very low number, and which was noted by many uh, observers at the, the time as well. And, and so uh, what gets complicated for Avgorin is that the Lebanese terrorists, the PLO terrorists have left, but come back by 83. And they're now being held up in Tripoli. And Israel has partly sieged the city. There's another side that's being controlled by some of the PLO's opponents and enemies. And Avgorin there says, no, no, you don't have to leave a side open. This time, you just got to kill them. And in the end, once again, because of the Reagan administration, Israel allows the terrorists to flee. In this case, they go off to uh, to Libya, where uh, the PLO uh, regroups. And and, um, and Gorin's very upset. And Rav Gorin's like, oh, the Torah law doesn't require this. And I think that he gets himself a little bit in a pickle because he said this is a bona fide law. But what I think we really had here is a general principle. And the principle said that when possible, try to minimize for both humanitarian and strategic reasons, the number of civilian casualties. But it's not a bona fide rule because you have to get, figure out the circumstances and how to balance the different values in our case. And so, you know, I don't think that there's a bona fide obligation to leave open a side. I don't even know what that would look like in Gaza today. Uh, 
particularly because we've left open Assad, just Egypt doesn't want to open it. And we're clearly not going to allow Gazans into Israel right now. But it does establish at least a principle that while fighting and while trying to win, try to minimize civilian casualties, including by giving them evacuation routes. I think one of the most contentious issues, particularly now, um, is the question of, you know, what is considered a legitimate target? Um, I remember a few weeks ago, I was taking my son uh, to Tarim, nothing too severe, just had a, a toe issue that had to be deal, dealt with. And on our way there, so we heard about, there was news reports that Israel had bombed a hospital. And obviously, you know, in retrospect, it turned out to be false. It was a hospital that was shot by a missile, I think, of Islamic Jihad. Um, but we do know right now that Hamas headquarters, right, is located in the hospital in Gaza. I think it's called Shiva Hospital. And um, this is not something that you have to be a great military strategist to be aware of. I mean, I think the Israelis have basically presented clear evidence this is the case. And then you have this very complicated ethical dilemma, which is, you know, if we know that Hamas is using the hospital um, as a, a center, so does that all of a sudden make the hospital a legitimate target? Now, obviously, just thinking intuitively, you know, engaging that hospital in war, right, and attacking that hospital would generate a lot of civilian uh, deaths. And we talked about that a little earlier about proportionality. But um, one of the anecdotes you talk about in the book, which is also just incredibly fascinating, is the story of the 1980s where the Israelis were fighting in Lebanon in, uh, in a refugee camp called Ein Chilwe. I hope I'm pr pronouncing it properly. And um, there's a place called Sidon. And in Sidon, so you have uh, terrorists who are shooting at the Israelis from a hospital. And there's this negotiation. Negotiation fails. So I'm curious if you could just, you know, maybe talk a little bit about what exactly transpired there. And, you know, what can we learn from what happened in the 1980s to the current climate where... There seems to be this very complicated moral dilemma, but as Israel gets closer and closer to that hospital, they're going to have to make some very difficult ethical decisions. Yeah, I mean, Israel has been a pioneer of thinking about these issues on a strategic and ethical level uh, because of starting already with the 82 Lebanon war. And the issue actually on a matter from the perspective of international law is pretty clear. International law was trying to minimize uh, non-combatant casualties. And so it says... Do everything you can and tries to create protected areas such as ambulances and hospitals and mosques or synagogues and schools. But it's very clear that once it's being used, those areas as or those buildings as for military purposes, it loses its protected status and becomes a legitimate military target. So it's actually quite clear from a strict perspective of international law the hospital, if it's being used in that manner, and this is not the first time Hamas has used those hospitals this way, is actually a legitimate military target. What international law uh, asks is that there should be some forewarning. We should try to clear out the hospital and uh, that you should once again keep into account questions of proportionality. And so uh, Israel has to ask is, well, who exactly is bunkered up underneath that hospital? What's the value of that target? And given you know, the clear amount of collateral damage that would happen in such a case, what are the perspective advantages and disadvantages? But um, what happened in the 80s was terrible because Israel then, and I think they're still struggling with this issue, more or less allowed international law or the ideas of international law and the perception of law to be a shield against fighting terror. We cannot allow Hamas and other terrorist groups whether that's in Gaza, Lebanon, Iraq, Afghanistan, doesn't matter, to use 
our ethical uh, impulses in international law as a shield to fight against us. And so, I, you know, I'm very happy that Israel hasn't hit any hospitals yet uh, because, you know, it's uh, for a public relations matter. It's obviously very complex to explain that to people. Obviously, a lot of people will die uh, in that circumstance, and that's tragic. But if it's needed to clear Gaza City, if it's needed to get into the tunnels and free our hostages, if it's needed to destroy Hamas leadership, that is a legitimate uh, military target. Once again, though, we have to keep into account a lot of strategic questions and diplomatic questions, which might make it much harder and difficult uh, to bomb that target. But that's not a moral question. That's just a matter of strategy and, and diplomacy. On a moral level, the hospitals do become legitimate military targets when they're being violated, when their status is being violated by Hamas. And that is Hamas's fault. That is their responsibility. And I think it's important to remember, both as a matter of ethics and international law, Hamas also has obligations to try to reduce the um, casualties of non-combatants. They obviously don't care about our civilian losses, as we saw, but they don't seem to care about their own civilian losses. And that, too, is a violation of international law. And so when there's no reciprocity, when there's no respect of this value, uh, it's clear that responsibility has shifted now for those deaths to, uh, to the Hamas side. And I want to be clear of David, this is not collective punishment, right? We're not trying to punish the Hamas, excuse me, the Gazan, the Palestinian people because of the actions of Hamas. We're trying to restore our security and create a certain amount of justice in the situation, which means targeting the fighters against us, the Hamas combatants. And unfortunately, there's an element of collective, shared collective fate or even responsibility because of the nature of what peoplehood is and what it means to be a part of a collective, because war isn't between people, it's between collectives. And that's a tragic phenomenon of, of this war, but it doesn't mean that we're trying to punish a new collective punishment. And I hate it. When I wake up in the morning like you do and see on CNN, you know, the head of the UN or someone else saying this is collective punishment. We're not trying to punish the average Gazan. We're trying to remove the very clear and present danger of Hamas. Why do you think there's so much ambiguity about this question of, uh, let's say, for example, targeting hospitals? I mean, you seem to be speaking about it um, definitively with total moral clarity, you know, claiming that um, from the perspective of international law, um, there's no problem with targeting. I mean, obviously, it's tragic, but from a moral perspective, uh, there's no problem of targeting a hospital if it has been taken over by a terrorist group and now used um, as a stronghold for terror. So oftentimes when you just, you know, follow the news or just see what, you know, hear people talking, you, you do get a sense that, you know, people are sort of pushing back at that. So, you know, is, is there any counter argument um, for people to claim that there is some type of moral breach here? Is it type of thing that people are just totally misinformed in terms of what makes something a legitimate military target? Uh, part of it is mis being misinformed and part of it is a purposeful distortion of international law by certain NGOs and other groups who uh, have two elements here, one of which is they perceive the obligation of human rights as always being primary. And so their belief is that if a person is a non-combatant, you, even an attacking party, can't violate their human right and their right to, li to life. And the fact that Hamas didn't do anything to protect them is irrelevant because you have a primary value of protecting their human rights and 
that cannot be violated. And so when they see these cases, they say, well, what did the patient in the Gazan hospital do to give up his right to life? And the answer there, of course, is he might not have done anything per se, but Israel has a counter right, an obligation, in fact, to defend itself, which includes killing those Hamas terrorists or fighters that are using that patient as a human shield. And so what's really happened in many ways in the world of NGOs and some of these groups is they only care about one value and they they see this as a primary value. And in fact, in my book, I quote some of the leading uh, military ethicists from around the world, Helen Fro and others, who talk about ideas of saying that there might be times when it is unethical to defend yourself, because the only way to defend yourself is to do something that will violate someone else's human rights. In my mind, from a Jewish perspective, and for that matter, from a general moral perspective, that is a moral travesty to make such a claim, that you don't have the right to defend yourself because it will infringe upon someone else's human rights. That is insane. And uh, Israel never agreed to such principles. The United States, by the way, never agreed to such principles. And so one of the big shifts here happened in 1977, something called the Additional Protocols to the Geneva Conventions, AP1, in which there is a real push by certain groups, the UN and others, to put the onus on the attacking army in this case would be Israel, and to say that you have to do everything to prevent the civilian deaths, even though it's obviously much harder for them to do it, and the defending side, in this case Hamas, is more equipped to get the non-combatants out of the area. And Israel never signed it, and the United States never signed it for that reason, because they understood uh, that it would be imposing this obligation on us. So, um, you know, I think that's a large part of where they're coming from, from a human rights perspective. The other element which I want to say, which is not you know, pleasant to say, but things need to be stated, is that part of what's going on here is just an anti-Israel sentiment with not a small amount of anti-Semitism. At the end of the day, many people just feel that Israel is wrong in the way that it's treated the Palestinians or Gaza, and therefore it can do no right in Gaza. And so part of what uh, distorts their perspective of how we're fighting in war is the fact they just don't believe we should be fighting a war anyway because we're really the we're really the Goliath here we're really the person who's in the wrong in general, and that is a distortion of the whole structure of international law, which is meant to say everyone's going to disagree about who's right and who's wrong to go into war, but when you're in war at least let's fight by certain types of rules in order to minimize the civilian casualties. Many of these people just feel that Israel is wrong. It's an apartheid state, and therefore we can do nothing right. And I think you see this in some of the statements from the UN and uh, and other human rights groups, Human Rights Watch and, and whatnot. And uh, that is a travesty. It's a travesty, a moral travesty, and a political travesty. You know, I think one of the things that we all experience uh, being in Israel is that I remember, for example, after 9-11, so I remember like, very vividly feeling a real sense of like American pride. I remember there was that song, you know, I'm proud to be an American that everybody was singing on the radio. And there was a sense that, you know, President Bush was sort of like really like, uh, you know, at the time was perceived to be a leader who was really going to sort of like, you know, be a, a profound moral voice and really, you know, be a, an important leader in terms of the response to the 9-11 affair. But there wasn't a sense that uh, the people who were fighting, the people who were going to battle were people that I knew personally. Um, I may have known one soldier, you know, 
just sort of Derek Agav in the U.S. military. But I mean, you, you were raised in Texas. Maybe you knew more military people. But in New Jersey, right, in my community, it wasn't like a huge community of people who were sending their, their children to the military. In Israel, it's the total opposite. I mean, in Israel, you know, everybody knows everybody. And, you know, both of us live in Modin. And just tragically, last week, uh, somebody who lives a mile away from us uh, was killed in Gaza. Uh, we both have friends. We both have colleagues um, who have children literally on the front lines. And, you know, every soldier in a certain sense in Israel is everybody's son. And that's, you know, a, a very emotional thing to sort of carry with you every day. And I think one of the things that I hear sometimes, oftentimes from uh, young adults, from teenagers, from let's say kids who are like a little younger and, you know, are able to sort of express things in, in, a, in a more sort of direct way. They'll say things to me, you know, I don't understand why Israel has to sacrifice soldiers, um, you know, on the ground in Gaza. Why can't we just, you know, bomb from the sky, which certainly Israel did do, but bomb more aggressively from the sky, even if that means more civilian deaths? The claim basically is, is that, you know, we didn't you know, want to engage in this war. They attacked us. So why should we be valuing the life of the civilian at the expense of the life of the soldier? Now, you could say, well, professional soldiers are different than civilians. But I think part of the challenge here is, number one, most of the Israeli army are not professional soldiers. But number two, just from a personal perspective, you know, we know these kids. I mean, you know, you and I were in shul last week and you saw these kids on Friday night who we all know from the neighborhood walking around with guns coming back from battle. And it's, it's a crazy experience to sort of see these people and imagine that these are the people whose lives that we're sacrificing on the front lines. Um, in the book, uh, you reference actually a debate about this exact topic between uh, Rabbi Ram Shapira, who was a former chief rabbi of Israel and uh, Rosh Shiva of America Sarav, and uh, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, who's a former, who's Rosh Shiva of Shivat Haritzion, son-in-law of Rav Salvechik. Maybe if you could talk for a few minutes about this question. This is obviously a, an emotional question, you know, for us in Israel. Um, it's a difficult ethical question, but and it's not a question that, at least what I have seen, has gotten a lot of press. And I'm curious, just from your perspective, you know, how do you answer that 17-year-old who's planning on going to the army in the next few years and thinking to himself, I don't get it. Why is the Israeli army willing to sacrifice my life when they can accomplish this from the air, assuming, obviously, that they could accomplish it militarily from the air? How would you respond to that? Right. So, I mean, it's a big assumption. And I think in this case right now, it's not clear that we can accomplish everything through the air. It seems to be understood, particularly because of the tunnels that we do need boots on the ground and also because of our situation of having captives there. Uh, in general, you are right. This has been a big issue. Uh, Ravon Shapiro and others were very much of the sense that uh, force protection, as it's called, must be prioritized to the extent uh, the way Rav Dov Lior put at one point is that uh, I don't want a single soldier to have a scratch on him, uh, even if it comes to the cost of many, many um, casualties on the other side. And, and there is a serious uh, intuition to that, and I, I think there's a value to that. I do believe force protection is a clear Jewish value that we must do what we can to protect our soldiers, not just our civilians, but our soldiers. And we shouldn't just treat our soldiers as well. You know, they're expendable, so to speak, on a moral level because we've put them, they're soldiers. That's their job. No, I don't think we think that way. And as you said, we, we see this very personally. I have four nephews serving right now and uh, we have many, many neighbors and friends, of course, serving also. So that, that is a sentiment uh, that is critical to keep in mind. A at the same time, we are trying to balance values. And this, I think, is a central part of Jewish military ethics is to retain a number of values at once, which includes the fact that we don't want for our soldiers' sake 
and we don't want, for the sake of humanity, to just be um, carpet bombing, right? And to just be killing everyone on, on site. Um, that is not what we want on a moral level, on a strategic level. Uh, we don't want it for our soldiers having that experience, and we don't want to be doing that type of bloodshed when it's not necessary. And so part of the balance, I think, that Rav Lichtenstein brought into the picture is to say, um, we do have a balance of values that take into account, and that includes trying to minimize a bloodshed, including on the other side. Uh, that said, you know, there is always um, going to be cases where this um, becomes a dilemma when push comes to shove, which you prioritize. The classic case, which has come up a lot in Israeli urban warfare in Gaza and Lebanon and elsewhere, is, you know, you have two or three buildings, you know, terrorists are holed up in one, two others probably have look like they have civilians in them. And the question is, you send the soldiers door to door, which is obviously very risky, or they pull back and then you use the Air Force or artillery or whatnot and destroy all three buildings, killing the threat, but also killing non-combatants. And um, during previous battles in Castlet and else and other times, there are those who said Israel needs to send the men door to door. And Professor Asaka Sher, who's the leading military officer here in Israel, uh, said, no, right, we have to prioritize force protection. The soldiers are taking risk already, but we do need to minimize their risk. And that means at some point to ma make sure that we protect them at all costs. I think Professor Kasher is totally right in that circumstance. And I hope that is what Israel, in fact, is doing in this war, understanding that casualties are on our side are tragic, not just because of the loss of human life, but undermine morale and undermine the entire military effort. Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly, right? We don't know exactly what's going on, all the details there. And But I, I do believe that is true. And I think, I, I hope this is the case, that one of the reasons why we've been attacking very cautiously on the ground is that we're using the Air Force in order to try to clear the territory and destroy some of the above ground targets in order to protect our own soldiers. Uh, that seems to be the strategy right now. I hope that's the case. And I certainly think that is what is morally uh, mandated. Obviously, one of the most uh, emotionally uh, heavy issues of this war is the fact that there are uh, 240 people uh, being held captive. Uh, among those people are, are women, uh, elderly, uh, Holocaust survivors, uh, children, very young children, you know, nine-month-old children. And, uh, you know, again, Israel's a small country, and many of us, you know, know people um, who are literally being held captive. It's been 31 days. So you can only imagine how horrific that is for them and for their family. Um, there was an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago um, where someone was trying to argue that um, from a Jewish perspective, um, it's the responsibility of the Israeli government to prioritize, uh, in a certain sense at all costs, uh, the return of the of the hostages. Um, he quoted a few passages, one from the Rambam and then the subsequent passage from the Shulchan Aruch, um, which talked about the extent to which from the Jewish perspective, you know, obviously being a captive is horrific and the responsibilities that we have um, to returning hostages. Um, this is a huge topic and we can have a, a whole podcast just on this topic alone. I'm curious if you could just, you know, lay out some general uh, frameworks for thinking about this extraordinarily complicated ethical dilemma. Um, this is, you know, not only theoretical, unfortunately, this is very practical, and this involves people yeah. that we know. So I'm curious if you could just yeah. provide a little bit of guidance here. Yeah, no, it's it's really tragic. Uh, I myself know two people who have sons who are taken captive, which is just mind-boggling for me and surreal on so many different levels. Um, and so many people in Israel 
know someone who's there or the family members of people who are there and uh, it is heartbreaking it is heart-wrenching and we have an obligation uh, to do uh, what we can in order to restore their safety and bring them home i think a particular focus should be on those that are alive um, this is a sensitive issue that in the past we've made prisoner swaps and very distorted prisoner swaps in order to bring home bodies for burial Met mitzvah of course this is an important mitzvah to bring people to Kaveri Yisrael and to be buried, uh, but but it's less of an imperative than literal pikuach nefesh, and these people's lives are at stake and are endangered every day that they're sitting in Gaza, once again, of course, without any visitation by the International Red Cross or others, which is, you know, a deep violation of any sense of morality or, or international law. Um, now, we have an obligation to protect their 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 lives. We also have a general obligation to protect the lives of our citizens living in Israel and in all of our country. And, and those two are very much related to each other. And the way that some have framed this is it's either one or the other. Right? You can trade off and like you know sort of make a deal with Hamas and stop fighting now, but get back these people and release all sorts of prisoners. Um, Hamas even announced they want all six thousand. Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails to be released for these 240 uh, people. Um, or you could say, no, no, we like treat them as if they're dead. That's how people sort of pre pre you know, present in Israeli media. I think both are wrong ways of thinking about this. Um, we do have an obligation to save them and to try to save them, and we should do what we can to save them within the larger context as part of our general initiative in trying to uh, save and protect and uh, restore the security of the country. And uh, so you're gonna be balancing different types of strategic goals always, but uh, I don't think those two are necessarily contradictions with each other. And I don't think we should perceive them as contradictions with each other. And my own opinion is that we've seen from our history of the last 30, 40 years, way since the Jabril deal in 1985, that distorted prisoner swaps endanger uh, the Jewish people and in Israeli society. Uh, the leader, of course, of Hamas in Gaza now was released in the Shalit deal. And many others went back in that deal, over a thousand prisoners released to commit terrorist attacks. And this idea that's out there of sort of saying, well, if it's not him, it would be someone else, and there's always another terrorist. Uh, I don't think that uh, is true. Uh, every terrorist you take out is another threat that's been removed. And this you know, belief that there's like this bottomless pit of terrorists that are fighting us, uh, I, I don't think is true. And so I, I think that we have to be very, very careful in how and what we do to negotiate and what we give up, what we would give up to release, uh, to release our captives, including, by the way, in my feeling, if they ask for fuel in order to release uh, captives, we should not be giving fuel. That will undermine um, our military strategy, assuming that the military strategists believe that to be the case. But that doesn't mean we should treat the hostages as if they're dead. That's a horrible thing to say. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to say that. And we should be doing everything we can to bring them home alive and safely as soon as possible. But this is a really complex war in general that made things further complex. Uh, but Ultimately, we know we have to be protecting as many of our people as possible and doing looking at it on a collective level. I suppose people will say, well, when push comes to shove, you know, if we had a way of, I don't know, throwing gas, you know, into the tunnels or flooding the tunnels, and that would kill a lot of terrorists or send them out of the tunnels, but possibly kill our hostages, what should we do? 
And that's going to be a judgment call based on what options that we have in front of us in terms of protecting lives. Uh, I, I don't think this has to be seen as though as a binary phenomenon. We have to see, given the circumstance, what, what are our options in the case. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we should lower the level of, of the dilemma, right, the decibel level of the way that people are presenting this dilemma. Okay, everybody, this has been uh, really an extraordinary dialogue. I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. And, uh, you know, last time we had you on, we talked about uh, medical ethics, uh, you know, which is your day job, right? And uh, now we have you on military ethics. So hopefully we're curious to see what the next uh, next book or the next uh, sort of ethical dilemma we'll talk about on uh, the next episode, although I hope that the next one will be uh, theoretical and certainly not, uh, not practical. But uh, we are all looking forward to your book coming out. And just uh, if you could just specify, uh, it was published by Corin, by Magid, and if people want to buy the book, if people want to get a pre-order, is it accessible already on the Corin website? Yes, it's already there. Ethics of Our Fighters is available, uh, certainly for U.S. orders or North American orders. And they're working to expedite this around. The Kindle version should be available in the coming week or so. And um, I, I, know I hope that it will ultimately help us, uh, maybe not convince others, but at least help us as Jews, as Zionists, be able to formulate, understand for ourselves what we're doing and why we're doing. And you know, I, I want to end with a little bit of a sense of, of chizik that we should recognize the fact that we're fighting a just war. And I think we're fighting a war in a just way. And this is just cause. And the fact that we're fighting it this way should give us great strength and should be great schut uh, to, for military victory and to bring home all of our soldiers and captives as soon as possible. I think one of the, uh, just, you know, if I could close uh, with just sort of echoing what you're saying, and also I think that's one of the many reasons why your book is so important. Because, you know, you mentioned before moral fortitude, you know, and I think that it's not only important for soldiers, it's important for the larger public to feel like that what they're engaged in right now is a morally justified war. And uh, having, you know, the intellectual backing, both through Jewish sources and also through uh, larger philosophical sources to sort of frame what we're doing and make sense of what we're doing, I think is really extraordinary contribution for you know not only military experts but really for anybody who's a deeply caring jew so thank you very much for that and uh, hopefully uh, looking forward to again to having you on soon back on the tarakim podcast thanks so much thanks so much for joining us today if you enjoyed listening to this episode of tzarek Ion, please share it with others also might appreciate being part of this conversation if you haven't yet please rate review and of course don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions comments and topic suggestions at oraita podcast at gmail.com this is tzarek Ion, the podcast of yeshivat oraita <laughs>